Mr. Ryan Carr, the one and only. Actually, did you know this? So uh, did you know that you share a name with a stuntman? I did know this. Yes. <laughs> I I think he owns, there's a stuntman. There's actually quite a few people in the entertainment industry. Interestingly, interestingly enough, there's like a director, like a, a movie director. One of them owns RyanCar.com. So that was, that was never the cards for me, but <laughs> not budging on that one. No. Yeah. I, um, well, for people listening, we have the most important Ryan Carr here. Not, not the stuntman, not the movie director, the more famous uh, Ryan Carr growth marketer extraordinaire and um, a colleague of mine at the hustle for a long time. And we're going to get into that in a second, but I want to preface this whole conversation. Well, I want to give a little bit of background. Obviously, Ryan, welcome to the show. Um, for people who've never heard of him, Ryan is like, as I said, a growth marketer, but the interest in that we work together at the hustle. In fact, I think one of your primary, uh, focuses was paid ads for trends, correct? Yeah. Essentially just growth for trends. Yeah. Okay. So you weren't really working on the daily. Um, towards the beginning of my time at the hustle, my focus was split between the two. Uh, but as trends started to ramp up, that became more of my focus. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So the reason, the, the little preface that I wanted to give to people uh, for this is, is this Ryan and I technically worked together for like two years. And what's really interesting about the media space is that despite the fact that we were colleagues and that he was directly responsible for growing the product that I write for, we've barely ever talked. And so like, well, we talked and he contributed uh, pretty significantly to the growth section of the newsletter guide that we wrote. But outside of that, we really haven't interacted that much. Would you say that that's a fair assessment? Yeah, I feel like we've caught up more in the past maybe three weeks than we ever really spoke at trends. So yeah, agreed. <laughs> and uh, and so I wanted to kind of uh, record this podcast episode as like a sneaky way of sort of interviewing uh, a call somebody that I should know much better than I actually do. Um, so we figured we would turn it into an actual podcast episode. But what I want to do is I want to start by going into your background at Trends in the Hustle, talking a little bit about paid growth and how you approach that specifically for newsletters and media, but now you're also focused on like the fintech world and you're building your own agency. So what I would love to do is start on the media side and then maybe we'll make the transition to agency and just talk through sort of how you're building that company as well. Um, and then I think my goal for people listening to this would just be to absorb some of the way that you think about growth marketing and maybe some of the things that you're seeing out there right now uh, in the wild. So with that in mind, a long prelude, but welcome in, man. It's great to see you again. And uh, can you can you start by just kind of giving me the lowdown on how did you even end up at the hustle in the first place? Yeah, yeah. So I was agency, um, just a digital marketing agency. I had been there for about a year and a half. Um, I had a, a couple of marketing jobs prior to that. But as a lot of agency folks will tell you, um, when you're working kind of in the lower levels of an agency, you're not exposed to a lot of the big picture of growth. You're basically kind of doing a lot of not grunt work, but you know, you're, you're doing reporting for one company. You're maybe setting up an ad here and there for another company. 
So my hope was to leave the agency life and kind of really be um, implanted into like an actual uh, company's growth structure and uh, I guess just get more of a top to bottom view of what growth marketing looks like. So I started exploring, kind of had an eye on a lot of startups, um, but yeah, was interviewed at The Hustle um, with Scott Nixon and with Sam and uh, yeah, was was immediately taken by just the uh, culture there. Uh, I love the hustle, the product, and would come to love trends as that grew as well. Um, so yeah, I was just totally taken. It was mostly the culture, I would say, just like, especially as Sam presents it, as I'm sure you're familiar with, but um, yeah, and the rest is history. What uh, do you remember what it was that first kind of struck you about the culture there? I mean, for people listening who may not be as familiar, like the kind of the symbol of the hustle, I would say, is the pirate ship. That that was uh, an image that certainly carried the team for a long time. But what was it? What was it for you where you were first like, oh, this is where I want to be? I would say probably, I mean, I had an interview with Scott Nixon first, um, and Scott is obviously like the best person. Uh, but speaking with Sam, how he sold the vision for the hustle, uh, it's super informal, as you can imagine, he basically came in, sat down, like drew on a whiteboard, like, here's where I want to be like 10 years with the hustle. Like, this is what I think we can accomplish was so like just driven and straightforward about it. Um, it's funny. I actually had another offer on the table at the time, like, uh, kind of like a large, like, uh, I guess more traditional tech company. And I was supposed to give an answer that day for that offer. And after the interview with Sam, Scott Nixon was like, oh, well, you know, um, Scott Nixon at the time was, he's the head of growth, the hustler. Um, but uh, he was like, oh, we'll, we'll give you a call in a couple of days. And I was thinking, I don't have a couple of days. Like I need like to, you know, I need to make a decision today. So about an hour after I, uh, I got out of that interview, I called Scott and I said, hey, you guys just seem like my people. Uh, this is this just seems like the right place for me. And I think I'm willing to make a commitment to you guys. If you can make a commitment to me, I have to give this other company an answer today. I want to tell them no. And I want to just like basically commit to you. Um, and he said, let me talk to Sam. And then called me back about five minutes later and gave me an offer. So that's yeah. awesome. And then, okay, so this means a couple of things. You were on site in the early days, right? So what's interesting about that is we eventually shifted to like a totally remote company, but, and this was before I was there, the hustle had like this really sort of special in-person culture too. Um, any, like any fun memories from, from those days? What was that like? Cause I hear stories about the office. Like I hear stories about uh, everybody going to Costco or something like that. And, just spending money on the weirdest stuff you could find. But like, what was that experience like to just be there early on? It was awesome. Um, it was very, there was only in, in the San Francisco office, there was only about eight of us any given day, like the max. Uh, I joined a little bit after I think the uh, kind of the period of time that you're talking about, but I was in the office for about maybe five or six months before everything kind of shut down with COVID. Uh, but the office location was awesome. It was right on Bush and Kearney in downtown SF, which was at the time and is starting to get back to a very happening place. Uh, but yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was very fast paced. Uh, 
Sam was always scheming about something and would basically bring everybody into a room and say, this is what we need to do right now. And we'd basically crank it out in a day. Um, and so everything was very fast paced, uh, but that's what I was looking for. And that's what was fun. Hmm. You know, I think a lot of people listening to this are thinking about building newsletters. So obviously copy blogger, actually both sides of this conversation are going to be interesting to people because we have a lot of agency owners who listen to this as well. Newsletters are obviously very in vogue. And a lot of times when people ask questions about building newsletters, newsletter companies, growing newsletters, a lot of the questions sort of center around um, how big does the newsletter need to be in order to start doing X? And there's a lot of different things you could plug into that. I don't, want to try and give an exact estimate but or i'm gonna i'm gonna try and answer the question but in a roundabout way when you first started at the hustle can you just paint a picture like where it was where the business was in terms of how big was the list roughly how much revenue was it doing and like what were some of the basics that allowed them to even hire a growth marketer in the first place? What, like, how would people recognize if they were at a point where they should start looking for their version of you? Well, so that second question is, is a little tougher because I think you can bring in a growth marketer at really any time, but I'll answer the first part of the question. When I joined, uh, when I joined the hustle, I think the list was around 900,000. Um, they were making very decent, uh, I, I couldn't give you an exact number, but um, they were they were they were able to basically generate a lot of revenue through ad sales. Uh, Sam had and the hustle team had made a name for the newsletter. It was pretty much competing against Morning Brew as the premier business tech newsletter. Readership is obviously highly desirable demographic. Uh, so I think the point that they were at and. The only growth marketer that they had on the team at the time was Scott Nixon, who was the head of growth. Uh, so they were looking to branch out into some new channels. When I originally came on, I was kind of tasked with, okay, let's branch out into Google ads because Facebook ads was basically the uh, the only paid channel that they had at the time. Um, so branch out to Google ads, let's test things like Snapchat, see if that has any value. Let's test Quora, which ended up doing actually pretty well. Um, and also let's build out growth for trends. So, you know, if you're if you're in a spot where you don't have any, uh, to answer the second part of your question, if you're in a spot where you're not doing any growth, uh, a good spot to start would just be with, you know, maybe one paid channel, but then, you know, as things start to add up, if you're launching new products, if you're trying to, to monetize those folks and convert free subscribers to premium, it's probably a good idea to start looking for help, at least on a contracting basis. Yeah. Hmm. Any um, advice uh, in terms of what people should be prepared to spend to bring in a professional growth marketer and uh, what the budget should be just in order to be comfortable experimenting with paid spend, growing a newsletter out of the gate? Honestly, you can, you can start to, test paid channels at you know as low as a hundred dollars a day if you wanted to and just start to set benchmarks and scale as you go um in terms of bringing in a paid marketer 
a lot of newsletters, unless they're already very, um, you know, established in terms of size of the list, product offerings, space to uh, to basically cover and it have people working growth on, uh, it's probably a good idea to test with a contractor, I would imagine. Like bring somebody in and say, hey, could you work five to 10 hours a week on this? Um, I think that's a great place to start. Hey there, it's Tim. And I need to take a moment to tell you about this show's sponsor. It's a product called Hype Fury. When I was able to speak to Yannick, uh, who is the CMO, one of the founding partners of Hype Fury, and he agreed to sponsor the show. I was so thrilled. And the reason is because I have personally used Hype Fury for the last three years, and it has allowed me to build my social media following and my personal brand to over 70,000 followers. I could not have done it without Hype Fury. And I, I really, really mean that. I use this product every day, and it's added so much to my business and to my life. So Hype Fury is a social media scheduling tool. It has three main features that I think separates it from every other tool. One, it, it allows you to quickly create content and schedule them. So it's a very nuanced feature, but it's so helpful. Basically, I, I sit down at my desk in the morning and I type out my tweet, I type out my LinkedIn post, and then all I do is I hit enter. And Hype Fury schedules it at the opportune time on Twitter, and on LinkedIn. I don't have to think about it any more than that. All I have to do is sit down and create my tweets, create my posts, hit enter, and Hype Fury does all the work for me. Uh, second, Hype Fury makes it so that you can easily create threads. And threads have been the biggest value add for me in growing my following. So threads really helped me grow my following on Twitter. And those threads format themselves into longer form LinkedIn posts on LinkedIn. It's actually kind of funny. I made a video about this not too long ago about how, yes, like you want to create threads on Twitter. You want to be a thread boy because I'd say like 80% of my growth on both Twitter and LinkedIn have been from threads and long form posts. And I wouldn't have been able to format any of this without using Hype Fury. Uh, and then third, Hype Fury is really good for keeping you inspired. So what it does is it it shows you some of your most popular tweets and your most popular posts. And it, it basically gives you information. It gives you inspiration as to what your audience is looking for and what they most actively engage in. So you're never sitting at the computer thinking, oh man, like, what am I going to say today? What, you know, what kind of content am I going to create today? It's constantly feeding you new ideas, new inspiration, and it allows you to to quickly create this content so that you can continuously get yourself out there, continuously build your brand, and most importantly, turn that social media following into newsletter subscribers. So through Hype Fury, I've been able to grow my personal email list, timstods.com, to over 30,000 followers. That's turned into a business within itself. It's really helped me grow the Copyblogger newsletter. We're at 110,000 followers right now. A whole lot of that is is also because of Hype Fury. So please, this is a product that I use every single day. I personally vouch for it. You can check it out at hypefury.com. H-Y-P-E-F-U-R-Y.com. And if you have any problems with it, you can send me a DM on Twitter and I'm sure I can convince you as to why it will add value to your life. So hypefury.com. Thank you so much to Hype Fury for sponsoring the show. And let's get back to the episode.
And so uh, it sounds like pretty quick after you joined, uh, the priority shifted towards growing trends or it sounds launching trends. Were you there for the launch? I was there directly after the launch. So I think it had only been live for a couple of months. Wow. Um, so what, it, what was that product like? And this is another thing that's very interesting to people. So for people maybe who actually aren't as familiar, the Hustle Daily free newsletter, right? Uh, big audience, they monetize through ads. Trends is a paid product. Uh, we talked before on this show about the different types of paid products. Uh, well, it was actually, I'm curious to get your take on this. From the people that I've talked to, the opinion that I've heard a lot is that it was sort of like in between a front and a back end product price wise, but really it was like a front end, um, $300 ish subscription. Uh, and so the idea is that you were trying to pull people over from the daily to this, to this paid newsletter at the point that you came into trends, like what was that landscape like? And what were some of the first things that you were thinking about in terms of trying to grow a paid newsletter there? Yeah, so at the time, the only subscribers that had joined Trends were hustle readers that were exposed to it through the newsletter. So one of the first things I was tasked with was, let's start to build out some growth channels for Trends outside of that. In order to do that, the, the step kind of before that step was, let's make sure we have uh an adequate way, an adequate way to track and report on trends growth as well, which they didn't have at the time. So building reporting was kind of step one. Uh, luckily I was coming from the agency world where the first thing my manager told me was let's teach you how to use Excel without using a mouse, just all keyboard shortcuts. So I was a little bit of an Excel nerd at the time. Uh, and so came in, built out reporting and then essentially started building out growth channels. So why don't we test uh, Facebook ads for trends? Why don't we test, uh, interestingly enough, a, a channel that ended up working pretty well for us was Quora. Um, mm -hmm. We did a lot of tests using their promoted asset or promoted ad asset, I should say. And we're able to generate really cheap leads through that channel. So we, we were just looking for ways to, to grow trends outside of the newsletter, start to build email marketing out as well. So uh, when I joined, there wasn't a whole lot and it was, I was basically tasked with let's build out as much as we can. Can we dig in a little bit on Cora? That's interesting. And it's something that, uh, I don't hear often in terms of like recommendations or, well, I don't know if you'd recommend it still, but just can you talk me a little bit, can you talk me through a little bit more of the detail in terms of how you guys approach that? Um, like you said you were able to get really affordable leads or really affordable subscribers. Can you share some numbers there? And like, what was the secret to doing that? Yeah. So I had never tested Quora before. It was something that in generating a list of channels to, to kind of run through one by one, Quora was one that I wasn't as confident about. But that being said, we had seen a certain type of Facebook creative start to work for trends, which was essentially taking the content from one of the articles and teasing the uh, juiciest little tidbits from the article. So essentially like this person made like $400,000 a year selling uh, a dog whistle on Amazon or something like that. You know what I mean? Like just something like that, where it's like, uh, 
you know, a tiny little product and how much this person made. And so basically went on Quora and looked for questions that would match up nicely with that kind of creative, where it would be, uh, what are the best business ideas you're willing to give away for free? And Quora at the time had just started beta launching this ad asset type called uh, the promoted ad or promoted uh, answer, I should say. And what it allowed you to do was answer a question and then promote the question and answer combo to the to the top of people's feeds. And you can do all sorts of demographic targeting there as well. And we found a lot of success doing that uh, with that type of creative. I think at the time uh, we were consistently getting like emails for about 30 cents, which was crazy. What? And then we would send them through this comprehensive email marketing uh, sequence that we were building as well. Hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it was, we were able to essentially buy those top of funnel leads for pretty cheap, uh, for very cheap, 30 cents at one point, uh, and just start to kind of filter them through the rest of our, our funnel. Can you tell me a little bit more about the funnel too? Like, this is something that I don't think a lot of people spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, everything that happens after you capture the email address in order to try and convert somebody. Uh, obviously, as a growth marketer, you think about that almost exclusively. But like, for people who are uh, a little newer to like structured growth, what did that funnel look like? And were there any big aha moments where you really learned how to move a paid newsletter through that funnel? Yeah. So for trends specifically, one of the biggest channels for us was our email sequence because obviously higher price point, you know, $300 a year, uh, it's going to be hard to convince people on the first visit to the landing page uh, you know, why don't we, and also the trial came in, uh, at, at a certain point where we said, okay, let's give them a trial, uh, like a seven day or 14 day trial, but ultimately education was important. And so in terms of an aha moment, really realizing that go figure these folks that are subscribing to a free email newsletter, free email newsletter are, uh, pretty, uh, open to email marketing. So we started sending a lot of emails for, for trends in that same format, really, where it's, you know, the really juicy tidbits from each article. Um, but in terms of how I would think about just a growth funnel as a whole, you have your top of funnel, which are folks that uh, are either like hearing about you and visiting you direct. So it could be from a podcast or a YouTube video or an influencer. Uh, I would also consider like ads. So paid ads, Facebook ads, TikTok ads, the like. Uh, it's kind of your top of funnel, your kind of awareness. You move them to the middle, middle of the funnel. They're on your landing page. They're reading about your product offering. Uh, and then you get to the bottom where it's, they're pretty much ready to sell. So or they're ready to buy. So you're selling a little bit more aggressively through email marketing, uh, through discounts potentially, and through continued uh, paid advertising as well. Uh, retargeting campaigns, for example. So it really is just a, uh, a funnel. I mean, that's why they call it the funnel. Uh, but at each stage, you're applying different messaging for the pieces, the the section of the funnel that they're in, uh, and that's how, that's generally how I would think about it. Hmm. Uh, and what what are your thoughts on core these days? You still recommend it, or have you been playing with it recently? 
Yeah, I think it's gotten a little more expensive um, based on more recent tests that I've run. That being said, it's pretty much only as good as the creative that you're running anyway, as is the case with pretty much any paid advertising. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you find a niche that already performs well in Quora or gets a lot of traffic and you're able to craft a message that uh, drives a lot of folks to click through, you can make anything work really. Uh- what do you think most people get wrong uh, about ad creative when they're making it? It's a good question. I think I think a lot of folks, and I, I mean, I can I can speak to what I've gotten wrong in the past about ad creative, and that's maybe um, it's more process. The the what I've learned is that process is very important in developing creative. So whereas before I would sit down and write a bunch of headlines, write a bunch of descriptions, basically different pieces of an ad uh, on Facebook, for example, and uh, basically just line them up in in the ads manager and test them. Now what I've started to do is start by writing what is essentially a sales letter. Um, just long form copy. And I do this for all my clients. I do this for any big campaign that we're running where I start with the sales letter. And uh, what it allows you to do is really crystallize the value propositions and really figure out how to sell them most persuasively. And from there, you kind of pick the gems out from the sales letter and develop uh, creative that you can distribute across all channels. You can do organic Twitter, for example, you can line them up as paid ads on, uh, on Facebook, you can use them as scripts for uh, TikTok videos, for example. So I think it's the process is what's changed a lot for me, as I've learned more about marketing. Uh, that's, that's how I would think about it. That's so interesting. Do you have a, a recent example of that? Maybe from one of the clients that you're working with now? Or yeah, for, yeah. So one of my clients for Black Friday, for example, there was this big Black Friday push. Uh, this was just last week. Essentially, in order to, uh, I think, most effectively uh, position the discount as well as this big product reveal that was happening in tandem. Same thing. Just start with a sales letter. Wrote it from top to bottom. Uh, took about half a day just to like really think about what I wanted to write, wrote it out uh, over a couple of hours, came back and revisited it another day, got feedback on it, just really like honed in on the best possible long form copy for that campaign. And then use that to, we sent that out as an email, which performed very well, but then we also used pieces of it to distribute across other channels. So we used it as podcast read for their podcast. We used it, uh, we gave it to one of the, uh, kind of main uh, spokespeople for the brand to read as a TikTok script and then ran that ad across TikTok. It allows you to work a lot smarter, but you're also uh, you're also honing in on value propositions in a way that I, I don't think you really can uh, just kind of listing them out. Although that might work for some people as well. Yeah, it's so interesting as I hear you say that because I think to myself about how often it happens that I'll sit down to write something and then somewhere in that process, I will end up writing an idea or a thought or something that I didn't even know that I had until I sat down. So there's like, uh, to your point on value props, 
I would imagine that by doing this in this way, you come across either ways of saying things or even maybe potentially benefits of the product that you didn't even think you had until you sat down to go through that. How, how long of a sales letter do you typically write for these? Depends on the, I would say, I can't really give you like a character, uh, a character limit or anything like that. It's really when it's done, it, you, you kind of feel that it's done. You have to make sure that you're addressing all of the points. And a lot of times I'll go in. I mean, my tendency is to always shorten things if I can uh, and remove kind of the, the fat and the excess. But that being said, I think you really want to tell a story with the sales letter. And if you can do that effectively in, uh, you know, 100 words, that's great. If you need 200 words or more, that's that's great as well. Uh, it's really just whatever works. I, I don't really come at it from a perspective of, you know, I'm trying to hit like a certain character or word word count, I guess. Yeah, it's so interesting. I just um, finished reading this really short book called The 16-Word Sales Letter hmm. or something like that. Um, and it was written by one of the copywriters over at Agora. And he basically talks through his framework for coming up with sales letters and for people listening to this who may not be familiar with agora they're pretty interesting media company they like uh are, are you familiar with them i'm sure you are or maybe maybe yeah. not because they kind of operate yeah. in the shadows um yeah super controversial but it's basically a newsletter company that does like a billion dollars a year in business through, predominantly through long-form sales one of their copywriters wrote a book about how to write sales letters and as you would probably expect, the entire book, very easy to read, super informative, but it's basically a sales letter. So like the whole thing in and of itself is like a front end product to upsell you to something else. Um, all that to say, I really enjoyed kind of getting his take on how to structure this. What, where did you learn how to write long form sales letters? Do you have any favorite resources that you kind of go back to mentally or literally whenever you sit down to do this? Um, a book that I've been reading recently, I read through it a while ago, but I've, I've been rereading it just as I start to build these kinds of campaigns out for clients. The Ad Week Copywriting Handbook by Joseph Sugarman. I don't know if you've heard of that. Um, that is, that is, I would say, probably the definitive guide in my mind to writing a sales letter. Uh, just really practical um, applicable steps, takes you through each element of it, um, and uses a lot of cues that I, I use in my writing for sure. Or gives you a lot of cues that, that I use in my writing for sure. Um, yeah, highly recommend. That's awesome. I've heard Sugarman's name. I didn't realize that was one of the books that he wrote. Um, so, okay. So you're building the new, the new business. What's that been like, man? You're, you're out here, uh, building an agency. You left the hustle to the year ago now? It's been a while. Just about. Yeah. Yeah. Seems like it's been 10. That's why. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, how's it going? It's been great. It's been uh, an awesome learning experience. It's really fun to apply what you've learned to new situations and new verticals. And in that process, you just continue to learn more. Uh, it. I can't, I can't uh, say, I can't really tell you how fun it's been. It's, it's been a really good time. And uh, a you feel like you're consistently on the growth edge, which is what's nice. Uh, mm. 
Yeah. Um, well, I mentioned earlier that a lot of people who listen to this are either they own agencies or they're building agencies. And so I've got, or they're, or they're thinking about building agencies. And so I've got a question for you. I've got two questions, actually. Um, first year in, big learning experience there. Although you like, you actually had the benefit of doing this for a long time in different environments before you started your own thing. So you may have been ahead of the curve. But now that you're a year in, if you had to go back six months, what's one thing you wish you would have started doing earlier? And is there anything that you would have stopped earlier in terms of growing your business? Hmm. You know, everything, this is, this is going to sound like a cop-out answer, but I think everything has been a learning experience, even the... Um, even the more challenging pieces of it, I think if there's one thing that I'm learning now as business starts to pick up, it's the power of delegation and hiring and outsourcing pieces of it while still maintaining firmly uh, a firm grip on setting strategy. So that's the phase that I'm in now where I'm, I'm seeing, okay, it's time to start, uh, it's time to start bringing folks into this and building a team. Um, maybe I would have done that a little bit sooner, but I think, uh, as I mentioned, for the most part, it's all been a very uh, eye-opening and, and uh, consistently it's been a learning experience, which is fantastic. Hmm. How did you realize you were at that point like where you had to start bringing people in? Because I know people who will struggle away for years without ever trying to do that. What was the, what was the moment for you? Uh, I would say I, re I recently brought on a client where it's, it's basically... The, the bandwidth has reached its full limit now. And now it's it's time. I'm, I understand it's no longer about, uh, can I take this on? Can I take another one on? It's essentially, uh, it's time to start uh, expanding. And, I, and I'm already in the process and I've got some some great candidates. So um, excited to keep growing at the pace that I am. Hmm. And the new agency now, correct me if I'm wrong. My impression is that you're you're focusing more on like fintech stuff now, right? Rather than media. Is that true? No, it's it's really it's it's actually I, I have fintech media clients, mm -hmm. um, but it's really just media as a whole. Uh, I think you know, newsletters, uh, folks trying to grow their following, um, essentially applying lessons learned at the hustle, applying lessons of learning with this new clientele. Uh, and helping folks grow their lists, monetize their lists, uh, really across every step of the funnel. So yeah, it, I haven't really, I haven't really uh, limited it all too much by vertical quite yet. Interesting. Uh, you mentioned people trying to build their personal following. And I think one of the interesting uh, things that you've seen, like there's a difference between the way a lot of people approach building a personal brand and the way a media company will approach building an audience. Where's the crossover in your experience? Like what should more people be taking from the media world and applying to their personal brands? If you had to pick maybe one thing. I would say the power of distribution across different channels, it, it, working smarter essentially. So taking one piece of content and making sure that you're distributing, you're using that content to its fullest extent. Um, for example, uh, a podcast like this or a recording like this, someone could record a video, 
send it to an editor to chop up into TikTok uh, assets that they can use either as ads or as organic TikToks. Use the uh, use clips of uh, those TikTok clips to create Twitter threads. Um, do the same thing for for LinkedIn, for example. So essentially, just working smarter with the content that you're creating. And to be honest, like I'm finding, I'm seeing now that a lot of uh, people that are building their personal brand are actually doing that very well. But I would say that that's something that media companies tend to do very well, and they have teams, so they're able to do it very efficiently. But there are also ways to delegate that out using uh, pretty affordable contractors if you have the budget for it. Uh, but yeah, I would say that's that's one thing that that I would say. Hmm. Yeah, that's so hard, man. Because like, I I I'm one of these people who like knows that that's the solution, and then I but but I'll keep doing the thing that you're not supposed to do, which is like focusing on just creating the next new thing. You know, um, I really I like a lot of cognitive dissonance there. And I think part of it is this part of it is just like ignorance, right? I was trained for so long to believe that the amount of stuff that you put out is what's most important. But there's another part of me that's just like I'm scared to invest the time in cutting those things up and distrib distrib distributing it rather than creating something new. It almost feels like when you're drowning to stop swimming and just float, you know, like it's very hard to convince somebody to stop flailing. Um, how do you do that with your clients? How do you convince uh, them that it's worthwhile to do that? Well, I think numbers tend to speak for themselves, just whether that be at the awareness level of just here's how many new folks you're reaching, or here's how many new subscribers you're getting. Um, it also has a, a compounding effect. So even, I mean, attribution, I think all marketers know can be a, a challenge and a sticking point, but the more organically you're putting yourself out there, you find that metrics that are a little bit more measurable on something like Facebook start to magically come down a little bit. Your CPA starts to, to creep down as you're putting yourself out there more. Uh, as you're distributing yourself on these organic channels that don't necessarily have the directly attributable ROI. Um, yeah. So I would say that's how I would, uh, that's how I would present it. That being said, I think your point about it being difficult, I don't think that's just you. I think it's, it is a lot of work and I think it's also about building systems. So uh, having a and, you know, a lot of folks don't have the luxury of having somebody that they can uh, send out, for example, the, the example that I gave where you send that clip to an editor, uh, that might not be a reasonable proposition if you don't have the budget for it, but just building the system so it's okay, I create the video and making it as streamlined as possible, uh, having like a step-by-step -step that you that you create for each content in the same way that, uh, with the sales letter, where you start with the sales letter maybe some brand starts with a clip and you use that kind of uh, foundational piece of content to create uh, these ancillary assets that you can distribute across all these channels. Yeah. Like a, like an engine almost you can, you yeah. can drop, just keep dropping things into it and it, everything goes off to where it's supposed to go. Exactly. That's super smart, man. Um, all right. Well, I don't want to take up, 
too much more of your time. I have maybe one or two more questions if you have a second. Sure. Yeah. You got to go. Uh, okay. The last technical question that I have for you is uh, what are you excited about right now? I mean, you're out there experimenting with stuff. You're in the trenches. What, where do you think the hidden opportunity is people should be paying more attention to on a, on, in the growth side of things? Can't say TikTok. <laughs> Short form video, no. Um, <laughs> Short form video on, on foreign platforms, Chinese platforms in particular. Yeah. Now, uh, yeah, what do you think it is? Man, I wish I had a, a great answer for that. I think, I think that it's very easy to get bogged down within um, data. And this is something that I'm very guilty of as well. And, you know, data and attribution are definitely always important. Um, Rand Fishkin, who's a, a marketer that I follow, um, he, he put out this blog post a while ago that I thought was just like so insightful that was talking about the power of doing things that don't necessarily uh, generate a direct return or, or you don't, you don't, you don't, you can't track the return or measure it necessarily just putting content out there for the sake of building your brand. Um, and I think that that's, that's where uh, a lot of opportunity is because a lot of folks are uh, sticking with these channels where everything is so directly measurable. So really just, just uh, doubling down on the content and the creative and putting so putting as much effort as you can into getting those right. Uh, that I think is where kind of the biggest opportunity is because a lot of folks are, you know, are, are sticking to the channels where everything's directly measurable. I think that's interesting. I've experienced that from a slightly different angle, which is that there are things that I'll put out sometimes, not because they're strategic or because I think they're going to be popular, but just because I had a feeling like there's some itch that I wanted to scratch content wise. And lo and behold, uh, sometimes they're, way more popular than I thought. Other times people will just approach me and talk about this thing that I made that I had really no expectations of anybody ever seeing. And so they're impactful to me in that way. Maybe not popular, but like, oh, this made it, this made a mark and it was worth the time. And so I like that answer. And it's something that's been uh, kind of occurring to me too, is like, rather than just being so strategic about everything that you're creating, give yourself permission to make the things that you also want to make and maybe don't have a really clear picture of how that's going to play into the strategy yet. Because I think it'll eventually find an audience. And what's really interesting, I hadn't thought about this until just this conversation now. Um, there's this guy, Taylor Legacy, who is real big on uh, Facebook ads. And he, he says, you know, you should test everything because you don't really know what's going to be popular, but Facebook will find an audience for whatever it is you create, or like eventually the things that you create are going to find their audience. And I feel like there's some element of that too. That's at play these days. Like maybe the algorithms have just gotten so good that you don't even have to be strategic anymore in terms of your topic selection and stuff, because they're going to eventually connect your content with the people who are, who are looking for it. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely how Facebook ads is starting to work now. And a lot of the ad platforms, I mean, maybe on a, on a semi-related note, uh, creative really does remain king, especially in a world where the, uh, 
creative and content uh, are the most important, especially in a world where the uh, the algorithm is basically taking over for a lot of what uh, marketers used to do in the past. So it is an opportunity to just double down on the quality of the content and the creative. Hmm. All right, last question. Where should people find you? I mean, <laughs> how, where should they find you and how can they find you so that they don't go and contact the stunt the stuntman Ryan Carr? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So uh, as we kind of mentioned earlier on, I do uh, consulting work specifically for for newsletters and media companies trying to build their lists um, and monetize those lists more effectively. So uh, yeah, blakeleydigital.com. It's B-L-A-K-E-L-E-Y, digital.com. You can just email me at uh, ryan at blakeleydigital. Um, but yeah, pleasure talking to you, Ethan. Thanks for having me on, man. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, great to finally hear the origin story. And I always enjoy talking tactical stuff with you. I've learned more about uh, paid search engine advertising through you than through anybody else that I've talked to so far. So thank you for coming on, sharing some of what you know. Uh, and for people listening, go check them out. It's Blakely Digital. And then what are you on Twitter? It's like Ryan. Ryan, <laughs> Ryan underscore boat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I got to change yeah. that. I'll figure, I'll figure it out. <laughs> All right. Thanks for coming on, man. All right. Thanks, Ethan.